Welcome to The Word at First Prez. As we begin the new year, we're doing a sermon series called Top 5. The question this series is designed to answer is, what are the top five things every Christian should know about God? Each week, we will look at a different aspect of who God is and how oftentimes it controverts our traditional understanding of how we think about God. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading coming from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our second scripture reading is from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So did everybody have a good new year? I hope you all did. I was kind of hoping that, uh, you know, 2022 would be a better year than 2021. Like I got to New Year's Eve and I was like, it's going to be a better year, right? Like, it's got to be a better year. Because that's what I said at the 2021 about 2020, and here we are uh, one more time around. So I hope that you all did have a good New Year's celebration. Uh, Maybe you saw your family or friends over Christmas. Uh, But I'm really glad that you all are here today for this. This begins the January sermon series. Every January I try to do a sermon series about things that I think are interesting, and you may or may not, but we're going to do it that way anyway. 
And so this is a sermon series that I'm probably going to come back to again in future years. This is called Top 5. So it's top five things that you need to know about a particular subject in Christianity. For this first iteration, we're going to do the top five things that every Christian needs to know about God. Now, the reason why we're doing this is because all of you here, all of you watching online, all of you have a different understanding of what and who God is. I think Christians like to believe that everybody has the same understanding of God, that everybody just is on the exact same page. But I can tell you as a pastor who has conversations with people literally all the time about this, that is not true. The fact is, depending on where you grew up, your exposure to religion, even just how you think, that's going to change the way that you think about God. And it can be all kinds of different things. So some people, their understanding of God is like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, right? where it's a big white dude with a beard up in the sky. Yeah, that's some people. Other people think about uh, Santa Claus, another big dude with a white beard, because he's got a list of who's naughty or nice. Yeah, that's how some people think about it. That's how God works. Other people think of God like a chess player who is moving pieces of our lives around to orchestrate some larger plan for our lives. Some people think of God as being loving and kind and generous. Other people think of God as being vengeful and jealous. The list goes on, yes? So, what we're going to do in this series, the goal of this series is to talk about the common perceptions and misperceptions in the Christian faith. And in particular, I want to talk about the misperceptions because I think those are causing people to walk away from the Christian faith. And some of the people who are the biggest perpetrators of those misperceptions are Christians themselves. So that's one of the big reasons why we're doing this series is I want to correct some of those things that people have in their minds that I think are causing problems. On the other side of it, I'm hoping that this is going to help you have a clear understanding of what we believe as Christians, and hopefully you'll have a deeper experience of God in your life as a result of this series. So that's the goal of it, yeah? Okay. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. So, to begin this series, though, I think we need to start off by just having some ground rules. And a ground rule is, means that we have to kind of get some of the assumptions out that this sermon series is based on. And really, I guess religion generally, but this sermon series in particular. And the first assumption is that there is a God, okay? Like, that's kind of like ground rule one, you know? And I think that most of us in here, we just are like, we're Christian, we're like, oh yeah, of course there's a God. But that is an assumption. Because the truth is, is that there's no proof that God exists. And on the flip side, there is no proof that God does not exist. So the fact is we are working based off an assumption. And what I have found is that the difference between the people who believe and don't believe in a God, it tends to be about a feeling, right? So I have believed in a God since I can remember. It was a feeling I've always had. I've always believed that to be true, that a God exists. Likewise, I have spoken to some of my atheist friends, and I'm like, so how have you felt about this? What is your idea? And a lot of them, the what they say is they're like, yeah, from the time I was young, I never really believed there was a God. Never had that feeling. And so to the degree that I believe there's a God and feel that that exists, they feel that it doesn't exist, but just to the opposite extreme. So that's our first assumption. There is a God. With me so far? <laughs> okay. So assumption number one. Assumption number two, which actually is really critical to this, is that this God is the creator of the universe. 
In other words, everything you see in here, everything you see on this Earth, everything you see in the solar system, in the galaxy, the whole universe, God is the cause of all of those things. So that is kind of critical to this series. I need to put that out there now because we're going to come back to that idea a little bit later on. But those are our two assumptions. Now, once you have those two assumptions, we can start to define who God is, yes? So we can start to actually bring a definition. And usually, the way you define a God is based on a religion. And there are lots of religions in the world, like tons of them. And they all have different ways of defining God. Now, for us, we are defining it based on what? The Christian religion. And what do we get our understanding of God from? Where does it come from? The, the Bible, yes. Okay, <laughs> the Bible. So, the Bible, of course, is where we get it. It has what? An Old Testament? New Testament? So, all we have to do is read the Bible. We'll have our understanding of God. Sermon series done. Go home. You guys are good. I know that this is, <laughs> this is where you wanted to go to get out of here. Thank you for being here to listen to the rest of it. It's not so easy, though, is it? I mean, how many different Christian denominations are there? Do you, do you know? 9,000. That's a conservative estimate, by the way. 9,000 a conservative estimate because it's not easy to read the Bible, is it? The Bible has 66 different books in it. It is a single book, but it actually has 66 different documents. Those documents were written by different people at different times in history, you know? So I'll give you an example of this. Let's take Genesis chapter 1. First page of the Bible. You know I was going to go to Genesis TC. Come on, man. It's the greatest. All right. Genesis chapter 1. So first page of the Bible. You are introduced <clears throat> to a God, right? That was, you're introduced to that God is creating the universe, right? Genesis chapter 1. And that story, which is a very interesting story, it actually comes... From, we know it was started in the 7th century B.C. That's where it was actually originally written down, was the 7th century. But we also know that that story, it dates back before then, orally, to 1000 B.C. So people were transferring that, you know, around the campfire, all through the generations, before 1000 B.C. Now, if you jump to the New Testament, which is at the other end of the spectrum, the latest document there is 120 A.D., so think about that. That's more than a thousand years of time. A thousand years of thinking about God. And that's a thousand years of people thinking and changing in their evolution of God. I'll just ask you this. In your life, have you shifted and changed in the way that you've thought about God? And that's in your lifetime. Imagine a thousand years of that. That's what we're talking about in the Bible. And so what most Christians assume is when they open the Bible... The God they're reading on page one is the same God that they're reading about throughout the entire Bible. But that's actually not true. Depending on which book you're reading in the Bible, depending on when it was written, when the authors were writing, what they thought, it can be a very, very different way of thinking about God. I will give you an example of this. So let's go back to Genesis chapter one, TC's favorite book. So Genesis chapter one, the first chapter... You open the book, and if you read it in Hebrew, the name for God is Elohim, Elohim. Then you turn to page 2, chapter 2, right? And you find that the name of God is Yahweh. Now, most Christians assume that this is two different names for the same God, right? Which is actually not true. These are actually two different gods with two completely different origins. 
And I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of their origins, just so that you can get a flavor for what I'm talking about, how the Bible was written. All right, let's talk, with, let's talk about Elohim. So Elohim comes from the Hebrew people, right? And the Hebrew people, they originally worshipped a god named El. And the reason we know this is because it's in their actual name. Israel. Literally, it's there, right in the middle of it, right? So what that means is, may El be praised. That's what Israel means, or at least that's what we think it means. May El be praised. So, <clears throat> the Hebrew people, they lived in an area known as Canaan, or Canaan. This is what it looks like. This is, of course, the Holy Land that we would know today. And so they worshipped 234 different gods. They worshipped a pantheon. It wasn't one god, 234 different. And at the top of the food chain was this god named El. This is El, right here. Speaking of another dude with a beard. So this is, this is who they worship. You can actually see him right there. So El was the creator god. El was responsible for that. This, this, this is where we get that. Genesis chapter 1, it comes from this God, this deity, creating the universe, creating those 233 other gods, by the way, and then also creating human beings. Now, El was actually known as a benevolent God, very kind, a little bit divorced from the world, but is the creator of all things. And El is where we get Elohim in the scriptures, in the Hebrew. With me so far? All right. Yahweh comes into the picture a couple hundred years later. So Yahweh was a god of war. And this god kind of came from the southern regions. So it's south of Israel or Canaan, right? And it came up through the trade routes. So as a warlike god, what happened was people heard about Yahweh. And then the Israelite tribes started using Yahweh's name before they would go out to battle. And then they started winning in battle. And so what happens is Yahweh makes his way up the pantheon to the top, and they want to make Yahweh a national god alongside El. And so El and Yahweh are actually worshipped alongside each other. Now, to give you a little sense of who Yahweh is, Yahweh is prone to a bit of emotional instability. So Yahweh can embrace you with love one minute, and then the next minute... Yahweh can flip on a dime and go into a jealous rage. If you've ever wondered why the God of the Bible can seem like a hormonal teenager who wants to burn the world to the ground, that is because Yahweh was envisioned by the Israelite people to be a win-at-all-costs God who was out for blood. Now, the thing that made Yahweh unique, though, was that Yahweh had no iconography. So Yahweh, that means, you know, we were just looking at El, right? So El actually has something. You can see who El is. Yahweh did not have that. So this is all happening just so that we're on the same page. This is like 1100 B.C., 1000 B.C. It's somewhere in there that all of this is kind of taking place. So about 500 years later, what happens is the Jews, who are kind of the ancestors of the Hebrews, so the Jewish people, they're writing down the scriptures, Right, And when they write down the scriptures, they take these two gods and they're now monotheistic because they've been introduced to monotheism. So now they believe, oh, we can only have one god. But their history has what? These two. So what do they do? They combine them together into a single god. That's how they do it. And then that's the god that the Jews are going to worship from that point forward. That's the god that Jesus worships, actually. 
So it's that God. It's just the combination of the two. And of course, Jesus will eventually put his own spin on it. He will update God. And that is the God that we as Christians worship to this day. So I tell you this because I want you to understand that essentially there are like three or four gods in the Bible. There's Elohim or El, right? There's Yahweh. There's a combination of Elohim and Yahweh. And then there's Jesus' version of God. That's, the, that's what we see when we're in the Bible. Now, for our sermon series, we are focused on Jesus' version of God. Obviously, since we are Christian, that's what we're going to spend our time on. And you heard TC read this morning from 1 John. And the author of 1 John defines God in a very simple, yet I think profound way, saying that God is love. Now, that's a wonderful definition. I think that's a really good start for us as we begin this series. God is love. But here's the problem with that. Love can mean something different to all of us. What love means to you and what love means to me, that can be different. So for some of us, when you think of love, what do you think of? Some people think of romantic love where, oh my God, I fell in love with you. And I, you know, you're just thinking about that person all the time, right? That kind of, you know, when you first fall in love, romantic love. Other people think of it as being like soulmate love. So it's like, you know, where you're together and you feel connected to each other in your soul. There's that kind of deep love there. Other people think of familial love, love of family, or maybe platonic love, love of friends. All these different kinds of love. And that's fine. There's no problem with any of that. Maybe you think of all of those. But that's not how Jesus defines the love of God. He defines God as love as being unconditional love. And the reason we know that is because of the parable of the prodigal son. So I want to just take you to this parable real quick, and then we're going to talk about what it means. Yes? Okay, parable prodigal son. Fairly simple. There is a father and two sons. Younger son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I would like my inheritance now, please. Now, generally, when do you get an inheritance? When somebody what? When somebody dies. So, what he's essentially saying is, I care more about your money than I care about you, and I wish you were dead so I could have your money now. A wonderfully insulting thing to say, right? So, the father in order to do this, because he's a family of great means, he would have to liquidate lands and assets. I mean, it would be quite complex at this time to do all of that. But the father goes through and does that. Now, for the people hearing this, what's important for you to understand is that they would have understood that this would have irreparably damaged the relationship between father and son. Like, basically, by making this decision, by asking for this, he's cutting himself off from the family. So he gets his chunk of money, and he goes to a foreign land. He leaves. And when he gets to this land, he lives what we would call the party lifestyle, right? So he's eating all the time. He's drinking all the time. He's sleeping with prostitutes. And he is gambling away his inheritance. Until one day, he wakes up, and lo and behold, he has no money. So looking at starvation, he goes, and he takes up with a pig farmer. Now, if you're Jewish, what do you know about Jews? They don't eat pork, right? And so the fact that this guy is working at a pig farm and he's not eating even as well as the pigs, the people hearing the parable would say, ah, that guy got his just desserts for sure. <laughs> so he's sitting there, he's working at this pig farm, he's starving basically, and he thinks to himself, you know, my, my dad's servants back home, they live better than I'm living right now. What if I go back home, I speak to my dad, I ask his forgiveness, and I become one of my father's servants, one of my father's slaves. So he gets up, starts making his way back home. And he's kind of thinking this through. He's like, 
I wonder how it's going to be to see my family again, because the last time when he left, you know, he basically said, I wish you were dead and give me your money. So that's probably going to result in a bit of an icy cold reception, yes? So he's getting close to home, and as he's getting there, there's his father off in the distance, and his father actually sees him. And rather than become angry, he runs out to his son, throws his arms around him, and welcomes him back. And the son, he's trying to explain to his dad, he's trying to say, you know, look, you know, will you forgive me, all these things. The father doesn't really even seem to be listening to this. And he calls for one of his slaves, and he says, look, I want you to go get my finest robe, put it on my son, and I want you to go kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate, because the son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost and has been found. Amazing parable. I mean, honestly, my favorite out of all the ones that Jesus tells, it is by far my favorite parable. So, in order to understand the parable, though, we have to understand that the characters represent different things. And the most important character in this is indeed the Father, who represents who? God. Always God. Father always represents God. Master always represents God. Easy enough, right? So it's God. And what does the Father do in this situation? Does the Father reject the son? Does the father send the son away, turn him back? Does the father say to him, hey, the last time you were here, you just wanted my money and now you come crawling back to me? I don't think so. We're done. See you later. No, he doesn't do any of that, does he? Instead, even though the son did very, very hurtful and harmful things, he welcomes the son back, shows him love. And what does this tell you about God based on this story? What it tells us is that from Jesus' perspective, the God who we worship, core to the character, central to who God is, is unconditional love. And what this means is that no matter how vile and sinister you might be, no matter what you do, God will always love you. God will never reject you. God will never deny you forgiveness. From God's perspective, the door is always open. You just have to be willing to walk through it and you will find restoration. Now, is this not a remarkable understanding of God? To me, that is absolutely revolutionary, is it not? I mean, I think that that's incredible. Incredible. And yet, that is not the God who you will hear in most Christian churches. Not even close. Now, you might hear that God loves you in a church, but that love usually comes with contingencies, does it not? And one of those major contingencies is you have to believe in Jesus. That if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't have faith in Jesus, then you do not have access to God's love. And I will tell you why I think that that doesn't make any sense. So there's two reasons why it doesn't make any sense to me. The first reason has to do with believing in Jesus. The vast majority of people who are Christian are Christian because they grew up in a society where Christianity was dominant. So if you were born in the United States, Christianity is one of the biggest religions in this country. So you are likely going to be exposed to Christianity. But if you were born in the Middle East, more than likely you're going to grow up there as a Muslim. Or if you're born in China, which has one of the largest populations on earth, you are likely going to be atheistic and subscribe to a philosophy like Taoism or Confucianism. So this idea that God's love is contingent on you believing in Jesus... This doesn't make sense to me because essentially where you're born is chance, right? I mean, it's a roll of the dice. You didn't get to choose that, did you? So essentially what that means is that 
your ability to believe in Jesus is based on geography and chance. And so if that is the basis of you being able to have access to God's love, to me that makes no sense. The second reason why it doesn't make sense is because if you subscribe to what Jesus is saying in this parable, that God is a God of unconditional love, you can't then apply conditions to it, right? Unconditional means unconditional. There are no conditions. But then if you sit there and say, well, yes, God loves you, but, you know, you have to do certain things or believe certain things, it doesn't work. And so what I'm trying to do today is I'm asking you to think about this. What do you believe? Do you believe in a God of truly unconditional love or does your God come with conditions? Does that God request that you believe or do certain things? And I understand why people don't like a God of unconditional love. Like, I get that. Because if God is truly unconditionally loving, then what incentive do you have to be a good person? You can essentially do whatever you want and at the end of the day, you will be forgiven. But here's my answer to that, because people have brought this up with me quite a bit as a pastor. And my answer is, very simply, that people do not make their choices or decisions based on whether or not God will approve of them. Like when you got up this morning and you were making decisions to come here, all the things you had to go through to get your food, were you thinking, oh, what would God think of this? Is God going to approve of this? No, you weren't thinking about that. You were just making your decisions. Now, when you make a bad decision, sometimes you'll look back and you'll be like, I guess God didn't like that too much, right? But at the time, you weren't thinking that. It's like the idea that the electric chair is a deterrent for murder, right? Go ask anybody on death row who is actually there for murdering someone if they were thinking about the electric chair when they were committing murder. I guarantee you they will say, no, I was not. The same concept applies, right? God is not a deterrent for bad behavior in the vast majority of instances. Most people are going to make bad choices regardless of whether or not they believe in a God. So you with me on that? What I have found, though, is that people who believe in an unconditionally loving God, that those people, they tend to value reconciliation. They tend to value forgiveness. And they tend to value healing when they make a mistake. Because for people who believe in a God of unconditional love, they have received that unconditional love from God. It has healed them, and therefore they want to bring that out into the world. And so, I think you are left with a very important question this morning, those of you watching online as well, which is, do you accept... 1 John, the author of 1 John, that definition of God, that God is love, do you accept that? And do you accept Jesus' definition of that love as being unconditional? And I think this is a really important question because this idea is actually going to be in all of the sermons that I'm going to talk about. Like, this is the first, we're starting with this because it's a thread throughout them. I'm glad so many people are here to hear it so that they'll know when, when we come back to it what we're talking about. But I will tell you, that for me, this idea that God is an unconditionally loving God, this is the reason why I'm a pastor. I mean, really, fundamentally, this is the reason why I'm here. It's so important to me because I have seen what it has done in my life, how it's healed me. I've seen what it's done to other people's lives, how it's healed them. And I've seen how it can heal the world, how it can actually change the world. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, the session handed you a survey. And in that survey was an interesting question, which is, Do you believe in unconditional love? 
86% of you said yes, who took that survey. 14% said no. I'm going to start with the 14% who said no. So if you said no to that, I want you to ask yourself, why did you say no? Because that question of unconditional love, it is critical to how we think about God and the Christian faith. And so if you do not believe in unconditional love, I think you need to look at it and ask yourself, why don't I? Because Jesus puts that forward as kind of one of the most fundamental premises of who God is. So I just would ask you to think about that. But for those of you who said yes, who said yes, I believe in that, my hope and my prayer for you is that you might take that unconditional love that you have felt from God in your life and bring it into the world. That you might seek reconciliation. That you might use that love to heal other people. Because in my opinion, it is through unconditional love that we can truly renovate the world and we can see restoration in ways that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see you all. And uh, amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.